Hey everyone, and welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Arabilla, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we specialize in helping clinicians apply a BPS approach within the constraints of private practice. So if you are a clinician feeling burnt out or struggling to practice in a way that aligns with your values, reach out to us at tkx.org or through our social media channels, and we'll be happy to point you in the right direction. Today, we're joined once again by clinic owners, Jason Gardner and Luke Postlethwaite for a round two of our discussion on ethical practice. So we received quite a high number of listens, likes and shares from our last convo, and which brought up a couple of things. One is I'm really surprised that many people would want to listen to Luke's opinions. Jason, though, I do understand. And two, it stimulated some much-needed discourse regarding ethics and uh, retention-based business model and discussions which are much needed in our industry. So again, quick disclaimer, we're not the authority figures on the complex topic of ethics and ethical healthcare, uh, but we do hope to provide some insights into some of the tension points and some of the options when trying to facilitate evidence-based care within uh, our healthcare system. So, gents, first of all, thank you both for coming back again. Um, my absolute pleasure. Yep, absolutely. Happy to to talk rubbish if people are happy to listen. Jace, you are sometimes too humble, in my opinion, in my humble opinion. But um, we might kick off with the question on advice. So, a few people have reached out. Uh, to us and, and through these discussions who might be looking to start their own clinic or start practicing on their own. Um, so if we start with that one, some starting piece of advice for clinicians, what are some small steps that they can start planning for reflecting on perhaps your own journeys as clinic owners? Yeah, big topic, hey? Um... Where to start? Uh, I think probably the first little disclaimer would be that that any gems of wisdom that I have are, are probably from stuff I wish I'd done differently or, or mistakes that I've made. Um, I don't know what your thoughts are there, Luke. But um, and the other probably the other thing is then a whole heap of stuff that I still don't do well. Um, but I think the first piece of advice that I'd give people around thinking about starting on your own is to be really clear on why you're making that that choice. Um, you know, if it's because you're sick of your current workplace, that's not necessarily a good enough reason to, to start your own business, um, just because just you don't like someone else's. Um, and unfortunately, I think that's probably one of the key reasons that a lot of people do. Um, there's there's a, a lot of extra work outside of or on top of being a healthcare professional when you decide to start your own thing. Um, and so, I mean, when, yeah, when people ask me about this or, or, or tell me what they think it must be like being a business owner, it's, it's usually, you know, the, the perks of being able to work your own hours and, and do whatever you want. Um, and yeah, often the reality is working all the time or thinking about work all the time and having to, to wrestle with a lot of decisions that aren't what you want. Um, 
so yeah, I guess the yeah, the, the first piece of advice was would be to sit down and and really make a, a clear, like written down list of why you want to start a business, what your goal is, you know, what your mission is, um, what the the key problem is that you want to try and solve, and and why you think starting your own thing is the best way to do that, so that you're you're really really clear on what it is that you're trying to achieve, um, and then to support that, to put people around you that have ideas or experience or expertise that you don't. So um, I know for me, probably the, the things that have been most, most helpful is um, putting a couple of mentors or, or um, you know, peers in place that I can have open and honest discussions with. Um, some of that around my own you know, personal and professional development some of that around, you know, business advice and, and making decisions about your business. Um, and then particularly, and, you know, I'll, I'll say that, that Luke absolutely has been one of these for me as far as, you know, talking out tough decisions, um, you know, help in, in making some of those decisions that are, that are hard or that you don't necessarily want to make or, or that you don't know how to make. Um, and then perhaps most importantly, having someone or people around you that will give you uh, critical feedback or that, you can trust them to tell you stuff that you don't want to hear as well as the stuff that you do. Um, because yeah, I think often that's, uh, that's one of the most valuable things as a business owner is, is getting, you know, decent feedback that isn't necessarily, um, in agreement with, with what you think. Um, I'll leave some space there for, for Luke cause I've already gone off on a bit of a tangent. That's my job, mate. Um, no, I 100% agree with everything that you said then, understanding why. I think uh, there's so many avenues you can go down in regards to giving people advice around starting, but um, once you understand your why, it's it's getting really clear in your head what that looks like and how what that looks like is actually going to solve for the why because I think we go, oh, I want to do it because of, you know, I don't want to run really strong KPIs on my team or I want to be ethical in some way, shape or form is the reason I'm hearing a lot or I want control over my work life or how I run my practice. And then uh, the next step is you have to start building that and we fall into the trap of making it look like every other clinic um, that exists out there and Jason's done a really good job of not doing that. Um, if anyone hasn't seen Your Move Health, it's pretty cool. There's a fully fledged kitchen in the main exercise area. Um, to help people integrate their their home workouts at home so that it's not going from a gym to a home. He's already got that built in, which I think is so cool um, and, and leading. But the, the piece of advice that once you understand what it is that you're trying to achieve and then start envisioning what that would look like, having yourself a nice, and I don't know what the word is, if it's a, an optimist or a realist or a pessimist, uh, who sort of either walked a track that you're walking or at least one similar to what you're about to walk to point out maybe some of the the barriers that you, you're going to bump into. Um, you know, and an example of that would be our clinic. We, we need to hit $105,000 a month every month just to keep the lights on. And, and that's an enormous uh, pressure slash stress, such mountain of work that needs to happen every month just to keep the lights on. Um, and it's not until you're there, do you realize how much of a pressure that creates? Um, you know, and I didn't have that 
when I was, you know, having these grand dreams of, you know, being a, a big clinic that offers all the services and, you know, changes community and, you know, does all these things um, that when you have a few slow months or COVID swings around or, you know, you're getting 30% of your cancellations a week because of sickness, that how hard those numbers are to achieve and how mm. you know, when you've got 10 staff, if everyone has two or three cancels a week, that actually equals 20 cancellations a week and that's two grand a week and that's eight grand a month and then all of a sudden numbers become extraordinarily um, important. Uh, I think that's the advice is sort of having someone that can maybe flag you of that before it happens. It's kind of like when your mum says, don't touch the stove, it's hot. You're still going to touch the stove. You're still going to do what you want to do anyway, but at least you're prepared that it's going to be hot and hopefully you don't get severely burnt. Yeah. I'd jump in there, Luke. I actually loved something that you said there about not knowing whether it's, you know, an optimist, a realist or a pessimist, I think. Like, you actually need all three of those. Um, and so I guess some of us naturally probably lean one way more than others. So if you're someone who's, you know, naturally really optimistic, it's, it's great to have someone else that can, you know, encourage you in that and, and have big audacious goals to work towards, but it's probably of more importance then to, to have people that can give you that realism or, or even the pessimism voice that, that you do need. Um, Cause yeah, as a business owner, you sort of, you know, you want to be preparing for the best, but also, Kind of anticipating and and having contingency plans for you know for all the possible things that can go wrong so that just like you said when when they do then you you know you're as prepared as you can be and and unfortunately you know stuff generally doesn't go according to plan so um having those people that you can trust that can pick holes in your ideas or that can encourage you to dream bigger or or that can you know alert you to the the mundane requirements that you know that that idea will actually entail like all of that's really really important mm-hmm. yeah it's um it's cool because a lot of people maybe jump straight into it if they notice that they'd rather work somewhere else and not really consider all the background work and investment that that would take so if we reflect on perhaps your own experiences starting up would there be some things that you would have done slightly differently knowing what you know now with hindsight bias tell us all your shit mistakes gentlemen i i I won't tell my story again i'm sure somewhere in our library podcast i've told my story but i yeah we've had enough of you yeah so uh, there's so many mistakes that i made early so jason tell us your you know (laughs) well fuck ups yeah that's too long a list as well um i think I mean, honestly, for me, probably the biggest things I'd change is exactly what we just talked about there. Like I, I haven't really started out on my own with any particular vision or, or like goal of what I wanted things to look like. It was all just a little bit of a, an experiment and, and that's taken multiple different forms. So I started off um, as a sole trader, consulting out of multiple different sites, um, you know, all, all over Melbourne. So. 50, 60, 80 kilometers apart from each other um, just to, you know, to make up a, a full week's worth of work. Um, and then just as different opportunities popped up, I sort of jumped in and had a crack. And um, 
from there then sort of had a more of a predominant site that was still um yeah leasing space out of someone else's place and then took on a staff member to do that and and then made the decision to to set up my own clinic space um but a lot of those just kind of happened rather than than being the plan from the start and that i mean absolutely has thrown up a whole heap of challenges because you know it wasn't stuff that i was necessarily preparing for and, and planning for it was stuff that um it's kind of yeah the, the door opened i decided to step through and see what was on the other side and then realized how much i'd bitten off and um yeah had to then try and try and make that work um so i mean absolutely i'd i'd go back and do that really differently um but I think, yeah, the, the other thing that I definitely didn't realise that I, I wish, not that I regret that I've done it, because I absolutely don't, but wish I had have understood better. I think so often when you start a business or when you talk to people about business, the, the expectation always is growth and that the idea is to, to get bigger and um, you know to be as big as possible that you know the marker of success as a business is is how big you get um and you know that the the bigger something is the the more responsibility the more work the more stress there is um and so particularly like taking that step from being a sole trader to taking on staff is a huge step up in responsibility but then also in terms of admin and requirements and, and, you know, stress and stuff that can go wrong, um, that steps up a lot. And, and the exact same thing is true for um, having your own facility versus just kind of, you know, setting up out of, out of someone else's. Um, so yeah, I guess they're, they're all things that I'm glad I've done and they've given me, you know, much greater control over how we can do things. But, you know, the, the flip side of that is that there's just, yeah, way, way more responsibility, way more stress. Um, and, you know, as Luke was alluding to, way, way more stuff that can go wrong. So, I mean, compared to the scale of Luke's business, mine's substantially smaller. But, I mean, even then, if, if we're quiet for a month, we're, we're not going to lose, you know, it, we're not going to be in a $100,000 hole, but we're still going to be in a pretty decent financial hole that, you know, that I can't sustain personally. Um, so, yeah, the the bigger you get, potentially the bigger the reward, but also for the owner or, or for those in charge, absolutely more more problems, more fires to put out, more stress to deal with. Um, and that, yeah, is probably just something that I wish, like it, it kind of is common sense, but at the same time, when, when everyone always tells you, you know, that, that the whole point of a business is, is to grow. Um, yeah, I probably wasn't made aware of the fact that the, the drawbacks grow in proportion with the benefits or the possibilities. Yeah. Some of the realities that are often included with that, that kind of assumed definition of success, mm. maybe reflecting on what success might look like in the first place for each individual mm -hmm. and how that might also depend on your context and your personal situation and circumstances and what kind of business you're scaling up to. I think mm. there's a lot of options for, for people maybe within private practice at the moment who are thinking about these stages and now there's some questions that they can ask themselves before embarking on the quest of growth for the sake of growth i think when you sign up to do a degree 
you kind of know that you're about to do a really hard four or five years on student type income and studying late at night and all that type of stuff. But I think when you go into business, a lot of people who are starting businesses, whether they be clinicians or not, have this idea that they're going to be leading a team and making all these decisions and feel fully empowered and um, have autonomy and be working to something that's meaningful. And all those things are somewhat true. But at the same time is every client who walks through your front door is your boss. And you sort of early doors when you've just taken out insert amount of money of debt to fit a place out, pay for a lease up front, buy equipment, you know, pay for staff that aren't fully utilised, implement systems, buy computers, telephone systems, all the things that you need to get get off the ground, um, is that you become highly, you become vulnerable in, in a way and you do almost anything for anyone to, to make it work. And it's the opposite. It sends you down this personal path that is the opposite to what you thought you were going to get mm. for a long and until those roads meet again, people get really unhappy and have the what the fuck am I doing crisis. And then when they finally get to a point where maybe they're making some profit and they've, you know, done well, they're like, ah, here we go. It's, a, it's about to, you know, all come easy roads. You know, this is what everyone's been talking about. And then you get all the team issues and HR issues and growth pains and, uh, you know, rising operating costs. And, yeah, it, it, it just seems to never end, uh, at least in this industry. It's not like a technology startup that, you know, you start in your garage and then all of a sudden you're worth a billion dollars. That doesn't happen. Um, it's generally the, the slow, longer grind type industry. Um, and I just don't think a, a lot of people are prepared in that first four or five years of how hard it can get. Yeah. For the listeners who are currently thinking about starting up or, or looking to build that and take small steps and they're noticing perhaps the direction that their clinic team is heading towards might be different to where they would like to head towards. Um, and now talking about some of the realities and the considerations, the challenges of setting up your own clinic, what advice would you offer for them? So then not just jumping straight in. And if there's ways to navigate differences in opinion, differences in, in approaches. Um, I think one thing that struck out for, for me in the conversation was it can be easy to just want to, leave the entire situation, but not really take into consideration uh, our deeper why and have having contingency plans. Mm. So for those in private practice now that are perhaps thinking about starting and then noticing differences in clinical opinions, do they even need to leave in the first place? What, what are your thoughts there? So people aren't you know, rushing out to do their own thing necessarily. Um, I'll answer. No one needs needs to leave unless there's like a full abuse going on type situation. It's it's. I think it's a want to leave scenario. And I may be wrong. Maybe misinterpreting that in my own mind at the moment. But like, in my opinion, if you can't impact a culture within your current workplace, you know, unless it's a situation where it's a small clinic where you've just got your boss clinic owner and you that that's a very different power scenario but let's say there's 
you know, five or six other clinicians at similar level to you with a, maybe some sort of management structure above you. I feel like unless you're able to impact the culture where you are, trying to lead your own team when you're under financial, like it, they're the same problems. They're just different. You're just in a different position. Um, mm -hmm. So my first piece of advice is practice your leadership skills. Can mm -hmm. you impact the culture where you are positively? Yeah. And if you can't, you're probably not going to be able to do it in your own business because it takes a special type of person to be able to change people's opinions and views and like trying to motivate people to work really hard when you've just asked them to take a pay cut because times are tough. That's not easy. <laughs> it's not an easy thing to do, right? Like, and, and not only that, not walk around like sad sacks of shits because work's not fun at the moment because work's not always fun. Um, and, and realizing that you are part of culture. Culture is not something that you enter into and are a, a recipient of. It's like you yeah. are an important part of. So recognizing that and having a play with, can I influence this? You know, can I convince my management team on some sort of new project and can I make it profitable? Things like that. Um, maybe running your own reports, like asking for permission from your, your clinic owner, whoever it may be to run some reports and just run some numbers and work out, you know, how much margin is there actually? Because I think there's a lot of perception around, oh, you know, I get charged out at a hundred bucks and I'm only getting paid 50. So therefore they're making $50 profit. That That is not how the numbers work by any means of the imagination. Um, so maybe just a, a lunch with your boss and just like explain me the numbers. Yeah, I think that's, that's great advice. You've actually just touched on a couple of things there, Luke. So going back to previously, what, what would we suggest to people think about starting their own thing is absolutely if you've got the opportunity to, to ask somebody to peer behind the curtain a little bit. So whether that's your current employer, um, you know, to, to learn a little bit about what's involved in, in running a business or, or chatting to peers or friends or mentors that, that have done that. Um, I think that's so crucial because often when, you know, when you are working as an employee, you, you don't see the, the other stuff that happens that enables you to do your job as a clinician. Um, but when you work for yourself, you've got to do all that stuff, particularly when you start, you are, you know, the accountant, the receptionist, the clinician, the marketing manager, the complaints department, the, you know, all of those things yourself. Um, and you have to know how all of those things work. Um, so yeah, if, if you are in a position of employment and have the opportunity to, you know, to ask, to learn about some of that stuff, that's, not your job description. That's that's really valuable, regardless of whether you want to start your own thing or, or whether you just want to, you know, get involved in your current workplace or a future workplace. More having that understanding of of what goes on outside of what you do is is really useful. Um, in terms of the current question, then about advice to to clinicians who are feeling like they're they're maybe at odds with their workplace currently in terms of values or, or goals. Um, I think it comes back to a little bit what we were speaking about for setting up your own business. Be really clear on what your values and goals are. Um, I think it's often really easy for us to, to pick holes in what we're not happy with or, or to identify what we're not, but it can be really hard to articulate, you know, what is important to us. Um, you're never going to find a workplace that perfectly aligns to, to you. And I mean, I can say from my experience, I'm sure Luke would agree with me here that 
even when you try and build the workplace that's completely in line with your own values and, and goals, it doesn't end up being that way. You, you have to make compromises. So I think if you've got the expectation that, that your work environment is going to be a perfect fit, then you're probably going to be disappointed. Um, but if you're quite clear on what, you know, what your values are and then also what weighting or what priority you give those different values, that can be really useful then to, to have a look at the situation you're in. If, you know, if your two or three like highest priority values in, in your life are just completely at odds with the place that you're working, then, you know, maybe it's not a good fit for you and it's going to be bloody hard work to either try and change the workplace or, or change yourself to, to feel happy. Um, but if there's, you know, there's some congruency between some of the things that you really prioritise and then potentially there's some other things that, that you're not quite happy with or that are a little bit different, but they're not, you know, they're not deal breakers for you, then exactly as Luke said, you, you look at, all right, well, what influence can I have? Um, you know, do I need to be a little bit flexible if I'm expecting the workplace to also be a little bit flexible? Where, like, where's the opportunity to meet? What would I be, you know, what concessions would I be happy to to give? Um, you know, if it meant that there were concessions that came my way as well. Um, and, you know, how can I be a part of changing that culture or, or, you know, growing that culture, as Luke said, rather than than just expecting it to be handed to you on a platter? Um, all of that is really hard to do if you're not clear on your own values and, and where you stand and what you prioritise. Absolutely. It's a learning more about the behind-the-scenes work in the first place and seeing if there's ways to implement some of your your own uh, ideas of what healthcare might be like within your constraints rather than thinking that you can only start applying it when you're doing your own thing completely. It's almost like a might be a bit of an avoidance when you realise that there's a lot more work to do and you can still get burnt out or still have those similar kind of struggles in your own clinical practice just as much if you were running your own show. Yeah. So it's helpful to see if there's ways to implement that with your current situation rather than waiting mm -hmm. until you have your own space, for instance. Yeah. But so, some other questions that have come up in terms of compensatory schemes, uh, and this might be most relevant to the idea of, of ethical healthcare practice and the idea that there's... Uh, we would need to consider the a zoomed out view of how our healthcare system works, what might be some of the short-term versus long-term uh, implications of our choices within um, the, the level that we can influence the healthcare system, which is probably not that much in general. But if we have some ideas of um, compensatory schemes compared to say private paying clients, would there be differences when treating someone through one of those compensatory uh, schemes such as workers' um, comp or NDIS or DVA aged care compared to if they were paying, paying privately? Um, I think we'd start there and then see would, would our approaches change hmm. in a hypothetical um apart from the obvious of like when you're working with like your work covers and things like that you've got those yellow flag associations and poor outcomes 
across the board with some of that. But would my philosophical lens change on do I treat this person differently in regards to, I'm, I'm guessing, a financial perspective? Um, I, I don't think it changes much for me at all. Look, I, it does, though. I'm lying here. It does. So when you've got an, like an NDIS client with a chronic condition that's funded and they're funded ongoing because their condition's not improving or getting worse, it becomes a very different situation. So maybe we need to define the rules around this conversation a little more. So could we make an assumption that we've got, let's go the standard, someone comes in with uh, six months history of back pain, debilitated, unable to work, you know, quite distraught with their back pain, maybe considering surgery. Now they're either paying for themselves, their work cover, or there's some other thing. Um, I don't think then it changes my approach, how they pay for it. In fact, I would argue that uh, apart from specific reporting, I, I would, probably wouldn't even know for my initial assessment. Like I just see people in my calendar, for, like if the team books someone in my calendar, it just says, you know, initial assessment, extended consult. And I sit down and talk to them for 90 minutes about what's going on. Generally, at some point, I get a hint that someone else is paying for it or they're paying for it, but it doesn't change my advice if, if that's where I'm. And, and does it change um, how I act in that session? Sometimes, yes. That if I know a work cover thing is being involved or some other funding scheme, then I have a, a higher priority on getting some of those uh, subjective measures and more sort of numerical data with my objectives um, just to keep the reporting happy. But I don't think it changes my advice or what I would do with that person from a rehabilitation sense. I don't know if that answers your question. And do you want me to go into why I wouldn't do it any different or the financial implications of that? We'll let Jace talk. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think as you touched on, like it's a, such a tough, discussion because you can you can come at this question from a couple of different angles so like is there a difference between seeing people with different schemes versus privately i mean yes like as as you touched on there's different potential reporting requirements there's different um there's there's different psychosocial you know yellow flags there's um there's there's different barriers that may be more or, or less likely in terms of um, the speed or the trajectory of of treatment or, or recovery for for that person. So I think it's on the one hand it's probably yeah it's naive or, or unfair to say well no they're no different just treat them exactly the same. Um, but at least for me personally. And, and for my team, we try to have as little difference between private paying clients and, and any other scheme as possible, other than, you know, as Luke said, if there's different, uh, I agree completely. If I'm seeing someone through work cover, then I probably do far more questionnaires or, you know, paper-based outcome measures than I 
don't do that particularly regularly, routinely with, with other clients. There, there would be cases where I do. Um, but yeah, certainly to, to tick those boxes to, to make sure that, you know, we can justify what we're doing when somebody else is paying for it. That's, that certainly does change the practice a little bit. And I think it's important to, you know, to do that as, as much as we may, you know, feel like it's extra admin that doesn't always help us all that much. If, um, I mean, you know, there's plenty of abuse of third party funding systems. So, you know, within reason, you do need to be able to justify, um, you know, choices that you're making and, and treatment that you're giving. Um, I think also it'd be unfair to not highlight the fact that there is huge differences in fees for what different funding sources um, will reimburse you for. Um, and so one way or another that does have an impact. If you're a clinic that chooses to charge a gap for, for some of those, then perhaps it doesn't necessarily change things all that much. If, if you're gonna charge you know, $150 for a consult, regardless of whether it's private or, or work safe, and, and if that happens to be more than the scheduled fee for, for work cover, then you know, the patient has to pay that out of pocket. You know, you can sort of, you can provide the same time, the same care, the same whatever else, but certainly I know I've had discussions with a number of other clinic owners you know, over the last two years, particularly in Victoria with WorkSafe quite drastically changing their fee schedule that um, to not charge a gap, but to remain viable, they've had to substantially shorten the amount of time that they see people under WorkSafe compared to someone private paying. So, you know, it might mean that they take three consults with someone under WorkSafe to get through what they would normally get through in, you know, in one consult with someone private paying. So. I think like there, there are financial, psychosocial, bureaucratic differences between the different funding schemes um, that do necessitate some changes potentially, but certainly the, the lens that I try to work through and, and I guess, you know, the, the ethical values that I have is that to whatever extent I can make possible, the, the advice or the treatment or the support that the client receives should be as minimally different as possible regardless of, of who's paying for it. Um, and so, yeah, I guess the more, the more that like the out of sight backend stuff is where yes. the difference is as opposed to, you know, the, the interaction with the client. I think that's my belief is that's what we should aspire to, um, to, yeah, to have each client being treated as a client and, and their needs being met as best we can you know, completely independent of, of how we're getting paid for that. Um, but I'd also, you know, like Luke said before, I'd be lying if I, if I said there was no difference, because if I look at our, if I look at our clinics clientele and, and, you know, breakdown of income, I mean, we've got a higher proportion of NDIS clients that we see on a regular basis than we do any other scheme. So it clearly does change, um, you know, the, the way that, that our care delivery occurs. Touching on how we're incentivized, I feel if there is that difference in um, how much more we're paid in say NDIS compared to a Medicare session, at the same time, having a person-centered approach for all 
clients regardless of their funding schemes. So it's a quite a balance. I think would what's your approach with um, Medicare bulk billing or perhaps patients who come in with a you know lower financial resources and of a lower socioeconomic status um, who can only perhaps afford a number of of short Medicare sessions um, whilst respecting the sustainability of your business? How have you kind of come to terms? What's what's some of your processes with the amount of time they would have per session um, for your clinic team and your systems? I think, so that's probably a slightly different question or maybe I've just interpreted it differently in terms of like within within a given consult or within an initial consult, would I treat people differently based on their funding scheme? And, and you know, the idea is to be as, as little difference as possible. But with any client that we see, you know, in part of that initial consult would be trying to get an understanding of what sort of support they are looking for going forward is, you know, is what they're after some some advice today for them to go and implement and then that's it. And they, you know, they'll come back if they need to or if they want to. Are they looking for someone who can, you know, hold their hand for a significant period of time to help build up their their confidence and their capacity, um, you know, with, with you by their side or, or is it somewhere in between? And then depending on, I guess, yeah, the, the level of support that they're seeking, then, you know, the, the follow-up questions around there needs to be, okay, well, you know, within now within the financial constraints that, that you're within, how, how do we best make that happen? So if, if somebody's coming to see you privately and, and they're wanting, you know, your assistance a couple of times a week to get stronger and fitter and feel more confident using their body and, and they can afford to pay for that, then like, brilliant. That's, that's not an issue. If what they're expecting or what they're asking for is, you know, multiple sessions a week of support, but they're, you know, in extreme financial difficulty and, and relying on being bulk billed for, you know, four or five sessions through Medicare, um, there's a clear discrepancy in in what they're hoping for within those constraints. So then absolutely for us, our, our treatment planning then would change in terms of, well, you know, if, if you don't have capacity to, to be able to come and see us on a regular basis, either self-funded or, or through other funding sources, then how can we best give you as much knowledge, confidence, um, tools as possible to, to be able to manage within the limited sessions that we have. Um, so yeah, how, how can we best set you up for success? Um, you know, maybe with, with less contact than, than you would have liked, but that's going to get you as far as you possibly can within, um, you know, with, within what you've got available to you. Any thoughts on that, Luke, what would you add or subtract? trying to work my mute button here um yeah like i 100 agree like i think understanding someone's financial situation does impact the clinical picture and it's part of getting a good subjective in that like the more i think about it the more i do tailor you, you weigh up the pros and cons of everything right like 
if you know that someone's concerned about price and that you may only get two or three sessions with them because of financial concerns, you would tend to put more information on them in a more condensed, quicker manner to try and walk that line of can can they take this on without me overwhelming and that they completely miss the point versus someone who comes in who may be on NDIS where, you know, their plan's already approved for the next four months. So you can take your time and layer it in over time. Um, so I think it it's really important. Some some of the other things though that, that we do is like we we have pre-written emails for EPC patients with the most common conditions like your your, your low back pains and your chronic uh, pain clients with resources, videos to watch, links to our blogs that our team have written in their spare time. Um, it's also pretty well understood here that like don't rush an EPC client out the door at thirty minutes if you've got the next hour and a half off in your calendar anyway, like just fucking look after them, you know, cause you never know who they're going to tell how amazing you were. You know, you just don't know that. I remember uh, one of our very wealthy clients came in on an EPC. And if we had made some assumptions about their financial situation, uh, they may not have been such a long-term valuable from a financial perspective client. Hmm. Um, so I think, still trying to treat everyone with dignity, trying to do the best with the resources that you have available, um, plan for the clients that aren't going to be able to resource support what you'd maybe advise as 100% your treatment plan. You know, expect that not everyone's going to get five APCs, that there might be two and that you're going to have to deal with that constraint. So rather than just hating the system, work your way around it because the system's probably not going to change that quickly. Um, so, all right. That is it. It's two. That's what I've got to work with. How can I best support this person? Is there any other opportunity that we can work with? Um, I don't think there's a way, but getting into the the problem solving solution rather than looking for that one way or it's bullshit, let's revolt against the system, I think is probably the attitude. And it's hard not to, right? Like it's hard not to get the shits and be like, seriously, that's all we get. <laughs> um, but yeah. Yeah, it becomes more of a systems issue than a personal clinician interaction issue in that stage and looking at what you can do, how flexible you can be with the times that they have or the resources they have allocated. And that goes with with any client and any compensatory scheme. To, to round this one off, if we go in this imaginary pendulum I'm creating because I love pendulums. It's a joke. I fucking hate pendulums. But um. NDIS client comes in, unlimited funding. Why not see them five times a week? This will uh, rarely happen, but for the hypothetical situation of looking at sessions and what they need and their goals, would our approach change if we knew they had unlimited funding? Yeah. Um, well, they may not need five sessions a week. Um, firstly, that should be that do they want to do five sessions, like all of the personal stuff. But I think you're referring to the what's the larger financial implications of just leveraging all of these third-party funding bodies. Yeah, well, um, I don't know if anyone's been paying attention to the news. There's a massive inquest into NDIS at the moment because of how it's being leveraged by, I think, bikers was the latest one I heard. There's a biker getting involved, like... Um, obviously, I'm not referring to clinicians who get a bit heavy-handed with bookings on NDIS clients as you know, part of the cartel or whatever, but uh, it, it has this effect where, you know, when costs get high, 
even governments don't have endless resources and money. And so unfortunately they will cut back and the people who suffer are the people who need it the most, the people who actually generally do need five sessions of care. They're the ones that get axed because we decided that we kind of like hanging out with Sally and she's really consistent with their 10 AM slot. And we talk about dogs and we both have dogs in common. So it's really fun to have her in my calendar. Um, you know, you get 25,000 clinicians that have two of these clients each all of a sudden we've got a big problem and, and those, those numbers start to add up quite significantly. And I know it's like a such a small slight in the big scheme of things, but it's those little things that make big differences when everyone gives themselves, you know, it's not the one plastic straw, it's the, you know, 3 billion people on the planet using 100 plastic straws a year, you know what I mean? That it, it's that concept that we've got to wrap our heads around that it's not just us, it's the culture, it's the expectancy of the clients. Oh, my last clinician used to give me five sessions. Why don't you give me five? You know, and it creates this over demand that is just not sustainable. Like we know it's not sustainable. Like they, they don't pay for inquests into systems unless it's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, so I think if we can all do our part, and I know I'm preaching to the the inner good in all of us that I know exists, like no one, I'm still convinced that there's no one in healthcare that got here to leverage money out of people. Um, I think we all generally wanted to fucking help people. And I think if I can talk to that person inside you, you'll, you'll do the right thing or at least review or at least consider some of the people that, you know, we may be seeing too often. Um, yeah, think about the system. Like I talk, and I may have done it in one of the other podcasts where I talk about how I think still Medicare is one of the single best things about living in Australia. It's like so... Uh, taken for granted our, mm-hmm. our healthcare system um, mm-hmm. and to piss on that or take the piss is um, I think very short-sighted of us like no one's going to become a millionaire by getting a couple extra sessions out of everyone I just there's enough sick people we don't need to leverage the systems yep I, I agree wholeheartedly and I'd sort of add on there that I think you know every every action has consequences right and so we need to be aware of of both sides of the coin i think you know within the the facebook communities and whatever whether it's you know your association facebook pages or or you know unofficial allied healthcare pages so much of it is is complaining about third party paying systems and what the flaws in that are and and you know how ridiculous it is when funding gets cut or when you know sessions are capped or or when there's new hoops or hurdles that you've got to jump over to to justify doing what you do um and you know those things do suck and it makes our job harder and it's you know it's inconvenient and it's extra effort but those things all occur because clearly too much has been spent without checks and balances and so you know, if, if we're happy to jump up and down with having to justify things or, or with having some oversight or, or actually, you know, being, uh, having, having some funding taking, taken away from us, then we should be equally considering, you know, when are we perhaps overdoing it or, or you know, when are there things that perhaps we don't need to be providing, but we are because it's there. Um, you know, that that's, Luckily like said, I, I don't think there's many people that are like deliberately rotting the system, but it's certainly easy if you know that you've had, you know, 20 sessions under WorkSafe to, you know, that's been approved and 
if it was a private paying client, you might discharge them after 15, but you know you've got an extra five, let's just use them anyway. Um, you know, that all contributes to, to the systems overspending. The, the money within workers' comp or NDIS or, or whatever doesn't just appear out of thin air. It's, you know, it's coming from taxpayers and whatever else. So when stuff overspends, there's a demand to, to tighten those strings. Um, and that ends up either meaning people are left without funding or those seeking the funding have to do more work to, to justify why that's necessary and it makes all their lives and, and jobs a bit harder. And, you know, ultimately, as Luke said, the, the ones that get hurt the most are, the, you know, the ones that probably need it the most, whether it's the, you know, the, the worker on workers' comp that's just having to jump through so many ridiculous hoops to even get started with their treatment because other you know, clients or, or providers in the past have abused the system or, or whether it's the NDIS client that, you know, needs a ton of funding but has had it all cut because, you know, everybody else has, has been using way too much funding. Um, you know, at the end, it's the people that the systems were created for that, that probably suffer the most. Um, so, yeah, we, we just need to keep that in mind with our decision-making that, you know, it's, it's not as simple as, oh, well, no one will notice or... What's the harm in a couple of extra sessions? But as Luke said, a couple of extra sessions with a couple of clinicians in a couple of practices in a couple of suburbs in a couple of states, like it, it adds up pretty quickly. Yeah, so it's more uh, shining some awareness and light on the implications of, of our clinical decisions and how that might impact the system that we operate within without obviously blaming individual clinicians for rotting the system and, and respecting that we're all in this to help people, how can we best help them, not only in the short term, but also in the long term, if we consider ourselves as part of a network and a community and not as isolated clinicians based on a very, uh, yeah, very individualistic worldview. If we were to end on perhaps some of the long-term benefits to practicing with these considerations, I can definitely commend you both gentlemen for raising some of these questions and having uh, some more reflections for myself personally with my own practice. So for clinicians who are looking to ask themselves these questions and see what they can do within the constraints of, of their practice to practice more in line with ethical healthcare and respecting people's autonomy and, and all that jazz, what are some of the long-term benefits? And also as clinic owners, it'd be, Interesting to hear what are some of your benefits in practicing along the lines of more ethical based practice. I think as a clinic owner, one of the hardest things that you face when you get to a point of scaling, so you feel you're telling you potentially you're looking to hire someone else is the the problem of marketing and sales. Like how do I fill someone else's calendar? How do we meet these demands that now need to be met every month? And marketing is expensive. Like it costs a lot of money to get people in the door from an advertising perspective, whether it be through Google ads or through signage or through mail outs or email campaigns, all these things take time, effort and, and money. Um, and so you tend to, especially smaller businesses, rely pretty heavily on, on good word of mouth and, and that social proof. And you know, some of the most damaging things that can happen to your business is have four or five Google reviews saying they ripped me off. They just tried to sell me shit um, or to be known in the community as the guys who 
try to rope you into stuff that you don't need. I, I think, you know, that would be possibly the most short-sighted way to make money. Um, you know, we all know what it feels like when a trade or a dentist or someone tries to do more than what's actually required. You, you can feel it. And I think you lose all respect, irrelevant of how good much you trusted them. You know, there's something that's been damaged there. And so if you plan to operate a business, it generally takes a bit of time. Like, you know, you generally have to sign up to a lease for three to five years most of the time. Um, and in that three to five years is generally the time that you take out loans for equipments and fit outs and things like that. So the first five years, you tend not to make a whole lot of money. So it's the next five years that you plan to make some money. And so you're, you're in for a stint of sort of six to eight to 10 years. And if in the first three or four years, anyone who comes into your business feels like you've taken the piss, then obviously that's not a good way to play the long game in, in business. I, I, I would almost say that every second one of my clients that gets referred to me by word of mouth comes in saying, I was told you guys might rip me off. Not I was told that you guys have the fanciest equipment or the most knowledge or the most caring. It's like that that's one of the things that we get told by our clients. Um, so that's that's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, long-term benefits of not leveraging some of those systems. I get a lot of professional referrals from case not so much case managers, but GPs and sports doctors and some of those physicians higher up in the triage part of the, the work cover schemes and TACs and whatnot because of you're the first person that hasn't tried to sell us gym memberships and ongoing sessions for two years. Um, and you're the first person who's looked at things like psychosocial factors and spent time sending resources to our patients. And, you know, so... We want you to see all of the people in our books and would you mind re re reviewing this person? So it leads to more business and more exciting business, those difficult cases, the juicy ones, you know, um, not just the worried well, you know, the ones that genuinely have been medicalized and have tons of fun beliefs to try and break down and you know, all the stuff that I enjoy at least out of clinical practice. Um, they're some of the long-term benefits. And you get to sleep at night. Uh, you know, I don't know how strong ethical compasses whether this shit keeps you awake like it does me but um yeah you get to feel good about what you do yep yeah 100 percent agree um like yeah the most obvious benefit is you know you, you feel happy with the work that you do and, and that you're doing it the right way um you know the the flip side of that is the yeah the constant stress of of you know probably having to, to work harder to have your your books full um, but I agree with Luke completely that it's it's absolutely a long game. Um, you know, if, if you've genuinely done what you can to help a client, got them to a point where they feel like they're happy to take it from here and you encourage them to do that, then, you know, that's the sort of thing that, that you remember. I mean, I can, uh, I can think of other professionals, whether it's healthcare providers or, or, you know, people in completely different fields that I've utilised their services before and, and I feel like they've genuinely tried to help me with what I needed, got me to the point where I was happy and then, you know, waved as I walked out the door and I like, I'd have no hesitations going back to them when I have a question that I feel like they could, they could help me with because I know that they're, they're going to help me with what I need and, you know, and nothing more. Um, you know, I, I like to think that, that that's what my, uh, my team and I strive to do the exact same thing where, 
you know, when, when someone leaves, we want it to be because they feel ready and happy to do so. And, and then, you know, the hope is that in the future, if, if they're faced with a roadblock or a, a hurdle that they're not sure how to deal with on their own, that that's when they'll come back to you and say, hey, I could use a hand again. Um, I think the challenging thing, like Luke alluded to, is you, you've got to be patient with that. Um, you know, just earlier this year, actually, I, I had that with a client that was an absolute favourite of mine about six years ago that, you know, I loved working with her. Um, but we got to the point where she's doing great and didn't really need me. And we had that conversation and um, she sort of said, yeah, look, you, you're right. Um, you know, I've got it from here. Um, and yeah, earlier this year came back and said, look, I've, you know, found myself tripping over something else. Can you help me out for a little bit? And, and by the way, um, you know, I don't know if you're aware, but here's a list of like 20 people since I last saw you that uh, I hope have, have come and contacted you because I you know, said good things about you and, and sent them your way. So it, yeah, I think the power of that, of that good reputation does spread. And, and for my business, at least where, you know, Luke alluded to how expensive marketing is, we just don't do it. Um, I don't know what, what I'm doing. So I just waste money, you know, pissing it on stuff that I don't understand. So we are almost exclusively word of mouth based as, as far as our marketing goes. Um, so yeah, it's a no brainer for me. I like, I can't operate my business any other way than, than hoping that our clients are happy and that they'll you know go and tell other people how happy they are and that they'll trust us to come back if they need it. Um, but if they don't need it, then great. Like that should be celebrated, right? Yeah. That's the, the trust is earned through the process of practicing this way and we can build our reputation within our community for long-term benefits for not only our own clinical practice and maybe practicing in, more in line with the, the way we want and also seeing the people that we most perhaps enjoy or, or working with like our niche, but also for, from a sustainability and business perspective, it brings more business in the long term. Gents, that was awesome. I learned a lot during this conversation and I'm sure there'll be plenty of discussions and really keen to, to dive more into these questions in the future. But for those who don't know you, if you could leave a social media handle, where can we find you? Where can we learn a bit more about your clinics? Start with you, Jace. Um, I'm on Facebook. You can always message me. I'm happy to yeah chat and, and talk rubbish. Um, or you can flick me an email, jason.gardner at yourmovehealth.com.au. Um, yeah, or if you're located anywhere near Mornington Peninsula in Victoria, then come say good day, um, come have a coffee, and have a look at the clinic. Awesome, and Luke. Um, yeah, just anything with the biomechanics. Um, I think we're on Instagram and Facebook and all of the things. I'm not heavily involved in any of that, so I can't give you a specific handle, but I'm pretty sure it would be at the biomechanics. We'd get you to most of where our stuff lives or thebiomechanics.com.au. And then, yeah, just chuck Luke at thebiomechanics.com.au if you wanted to reach out or email me or call me anytime. Legends. Thank you both for your time and till the next one. Thank you.